Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. I just wanted to drop in today and thank everybody for listening to the podcast and sharing it. We've reached over a thousand listeners, which I think is super exciting. Uh, we've got a lot of people from Canada, the UK, Australia listening, and I just I appreciate that, and it helps me understand that hopefully these stories are resonating beyond our own borders here. So. Thank you for that. The next thing I wanted to do is a little bit of a disclaimer for the upcoming podcast. I'm publishing it this week because this is the Day of the Dead week. So I don't know if you're familiar with that celebration. It's separate from Halloween. But um, if you've ever seen the beautiful movie Coco, there's a, a great explanation and rendition of what this holiday means to a lot of different people. And that is a time in which people feel like they can connect with their ancestors or people that have passed on. So they create altars and put mementos from people that have passed away and pictures and so forth. And, and we do have an altar here in my house. And for a lot of people, it's a healing experience to be able to have a set period of time of the year where you can reflect and think about uh, your past and people that were important to you. And something that struck me as we put the altar together a few years ago was that my grandparents on my dad's side are featured in the altar, and then my husband's grandparents are there uh, with pictures and mementos. And uh, it never even occurred to me that my maternal grandfather, so my mom's father, was not in the altar. And I can't explain it. Like, it just didn't make sense that he would be there. Um, and that's a, a complex story for me. And so what I'm going to share with you is, I think, one of the more, more difficult conversations we've had on this podcast. And that's a discussion with my mom as to what happened with that relationship. And I want to be clear, I'm not uh, trying to disparage anybody or speak, well, speak ill of people who are no longer present, but I want to remain true to my mission here, and that is to bring stories and experiences from a large variety of backgrounds, good, bad, everything in the middle, uh, because this is about sharing our experiences. So the following podcast, is very it was very difficult for me to do, but I thought wanted to, I wanted to share what is a genuine unplanned conversation, planned as far as like I turned on the recording, but as far as the course of the conversation, a lot of the things that my mom talks about, you'll hear this the first time I heard them as well. And anyway, I wanted to add some color to it and help myself understand that, again, kind of what, what I would describe as numbness or indifference to some people in our lives and how that happens and to normalize that this is a common experience. In fact, when I set out to start interviewing people about aging parents, <laughs> The vast majority of people I came in contact with about doing an interview with me said, I, I don't know, I, I didn't have a great relationship with my parent, or that was a very complicated relationship or a difficult relationship. And I suddenly started to realize that, well, one, those are uh, very interesting, colorful, valuable conversations, but two, that we hadn't really done a good job normalizing impaired relationships or strained relationships or challenged relationships. And if you look on TV, the vast majority of uh, parent-adult-child relationships, like I'm thinking of Frasier or Everybody Loves Raymond. There's these kind of positive portrayals of what it is like to live with an aging parent that clearly you have a lot of affection for, and there's a lot of healthy, positive uh, relationship 
structures that are, are featured in these types of settings. And so in reality, that's not always true. Anyway, that's my long wordy caveat to the, the following episode. And I hope you find something in it. If you feel like it would help somebody, please share it. And without further ado, I hope everybody had a safe Halloween. And if you do celebrate the Day of the Dead, I wish you the most joy and remembrance with that. I'll talk to you soon. Welcome back to another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. I have a repeat guest here. Jackie, welcome. Hi. So if anybody listened to Jackie's first episode, Jackie is actually also my mom. But I'm going to refer to you as Jackie because that's going to be the name of the podcast episode. So I'm not trying to be weird. In the course of us talking about Aunt Margie for that podcast, we had sort of touched on a different flavor of this same concept. But in dealing with a parent that you don't have a great relationship with, or maybe there's some history there that gets brought up every time you're interacting with them, or there's some even negative feelings, not just neutral, even negative feelings. And then you get into this brain conflict of helping somebody who is the role, you know, designated a parent and you have familial or cultural or religious or even just self expectations of what that looks like. But when you put that in the context of a more difficult relationship with the parent, I think there's a lot of stuff that comes up and that's what we're going to talk about today. Does that sound fair? Yeah. And I would think in my particular situation, it was complicated by the fact that I'm a nurse. Right. I would keep that in mind. I mean, I don't know if I, I mean, as far as helping other people in the situation, that was just another aspect of it. Right. And so I've often talked about in the podcast, the, some of the factors of the involvement, and one of them is just proximity. So you live in the same city. The second one is daughters or people who aren't uh, professionally very engaged or the next on tap, right? And then really the other big kind of game changer is the medical field. So it's very easy, even when it's not really a medical question, it's like, well, she's the nurse. So she call her first and, <laughs> and, and, and you're the only medical professional on, on that side of the family. So I guess I'm either side of our family, but anyway, <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah, so, and I want to highlight, if you're new to the podcast, so your mother, who is my maternal grandmother, lives with me in my house, and that's a completely different story. That's a completely different sentiment. She's the matriarch of our family, having a high quality of life, functional, having a lot of visitors. So with her, that was a completely different relationship for you, and I know that must feel different even at this stage, still participating in her care versus what was happening with your dad. So can you tell me just a little bit of background with your dad? Well, <laughs> sorry. I know that's you're like, that's a five hour podcast right there. Uh, <laughs> uh, my dad, he was a difficult person. There were people who loved and adored him. I mean, to the point of sycophants. <laughs> and there were people who couldn't stand him. And I fell in the camp who couldn't stand him <laughs> because he was a very 
flawed person or could be very cruel to others and had no no self-awareness. He used people to a great extent. And anyway, those that's a lot of reasons why I didn't have much relationship with him. Plus, as a child, he was mostly missing. He wasn't around very much. My mother did everything, including farm. <laughs> My dad talked. He talked and he talked and he talked to the point he would sit there. If you couldn't make him leave, he would sit there for three, four plus hours. Just, and it would be a monologue. It's a way of controlling other people, I think. I don't mean, I guess, to get into all the, the things that he did. He was abusive to his family, physically and verbally abusive. So that, you know, it, it just made for a very different kind of relationship. And to complicate it even a little bit more, I was his favorite. And I think my siblings felt, some of them felt some kind of jealousy toward that. And I wish I could have explained to them that's the last thing I wanted was to be his favorite. We're talking about a man who would when we had visitors, he would line all five of us, five children up, and he would say, this is the oldest. And he would say some demeaning thing about her as if that's, that's who she is in capsule. Like the, the middle child, he always said that she was a mouse. She never talked, she never spoke. That's not true. Susan, she's very opinionated and very verbal, but anyway, he would say, now he would point me out and they would say uh, that she just shows that you can put a good bull on any old cow and get a good calf. Oh my God. He said that? Oh yeah. He said that many times. Holy shit. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. That's, that's the kind of person he was. He had no feelings about how he was hurting anyone. It was, it was just, he was not a, a good person. He was not a good person. He was an only child and he thought he was superb. And anyway, so when it comes to him getting older and older and less able to do things, it wasn't like I had any feelings of, gosh, I'm going to stop by there and see how dad's doing. And can I add here that your parents divorced when you were young, like in your late teens. And so by this point, your mom and your dad weren't, they were wow. remarried and living right. separately, although they lived hilariously like five minutes away from each other. <laughs> but, but like, you know, in yeah. our, in our community, they were apart and they, they had developed, neighbors. They, were neighbors. Neighbors. <laughs> they developed new lives separate from each other and they did not that did not cross 
So when you say stop by and see dad, their mom was not there. That was dad's second wife, right? And I didn't call him. The last, I mean, the last thing I wanted was to get on the phone with him because it was so, so hard to get off. Yeah. And, and if I stopped by there, if I talked to him, it became like a, he just wanted to tell everybody that came in front of him stories about other people around us. And they were typically extremely derogatory stories. Yeah. One great example of what I mean about his, who he was, he had a friend. We had, he and my mom had friends from my earliest memories. This family was around us. And so they were very, very long time friends. And when that, that, man passed away i wasn't able to go to the funeral that day but uh, my sisters some of my sisters did and said that you know how they'll say sometimes at a funeral if anybody wants to get up and say anything oh no (laughs) oh no he did and he got up there and he talked about how their son slept in the bed with them until he was certain age that was pretty disturbing why would you say that at a funeral he went on and on and on about them and he always tried to hide behind well if i don't make fun of you that means i don't like you oh lord you know stuff like that but the bad thing was people tried to get him to stop like the the minister and he just kept going and kept going and kept going finally my sister went up there and got him and brought him down he wouldn't have stopped otherwise that is a narcissistic person right he doesn't see anybody else as having any feelings or it's just how do I get some more attention? Right. The world is the audience. That's the the whole thing with that. Well, so, I, I, I know that's hard to share and I'm very sad to hear that, that this was part of your life, but as with a lot of things, it forms us and it forms relationships and you're on the um, perspective on this specific relationship of how this plays out over time. And so you went back to, you didn't feel this, this inkling to reach out to him to stop by to call for all the reasons you've mentioned, but as his health started to decline and he wasn't in fantastic health most of his life, but like there was a, a specific, I'd say maybe 10 to 15 years ago where he started to have some health challenges. Can you talk about how that transpired? Well, he had, he had diabetes. That was his main problem. And he was really obese and of course he did not take care of himself like he should have. Uh, I think the first thing I remember as something that actually kind of maybe precipitated or was the first sign he was not very active, let's say. And he was, I guess it was in the winter time and he had his feet up against an electric heater 
and burned his foot. And then that became a wound. That was an issue, but he did have some home health, I think, and they were coming and taking care of that. But then his mobility decreased and his, his safety issues were huge anyway. I can't, I, I know I'm just kind of jumping all over the place, but this is a difficult topic for me. Yeah. So I did not voluntarily involve myself, but when I would get a phone call, then I would go. And I don't know how that psychologically works. Because what was it? I've heard you talk to other people. It wasn't a feeling of guilt or maybe it would have been if I hadn't gone I was afraid of feeling guilty but it was more like this he's my father I can't not go I, I would also suggest in some instances there's uh amongst the sibling group whatever the 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 trauma is within the sibling group itself they still have a shared trauma history and they've worked together and come together since they were very, very small to react to issue, you know, anything with the parents, you know what I'm saying? And so that has to be a very familiar feeling to get a call from any one of your sisters and think that there's not a discussion about who or how that for the ones that still remained in his life. Now he was already by this point estranged from at least two of his five children. Yeah. And so when you're talking about this, you're down to three individuals who are still willing to to interact with him so i want to make that clear that when when you do alienate your children in that way i mean this is an example of understandably that's within their autonomy to say i don't i don't want to interact with you again and so we don't have to get into the psychology of it but not only that but i think of of that as like a very familiar place to be which is with your sisters yeah. trying to figure something out. And uh, one of my siblings who still was trying to have some kind of relationship with them, she lived quite a distance away. So right. that really was two of us. Right, right, right. I I was, <laughs> I felt like I was one of the most traumatic, difficult days. His my stepmother called me and I can't remember what all the circumstances were, but she said he was really sick. He needed to go to the doctor or go to the hospital or something else. So she asked me to come over there and I went and I did say, you need, you need to go to the hospital. We need to get you to the ER one. Well, he said, okay, he would go, but he wanted to take a shower first. And like I said, he was very obese. He, I know he had, I remember he had started falling a lot around that time. So I wanted to call an ambulance and have them come and get him for safety's sake. Well, the whole idea of him getting up to take a shower was a bad idea. I, I remember said, this because I was there as well. Yes, okay. it was quite yeah. the debacle. They'll give you a bath at the hot no. 
So finally I helped him. He got into the shower. He's in there naked. I'm having to stand there by him, trying to stabilize him. And he fell. Right. And he's lodged there in this very small shower that he had. And I had to call my husband, who is now my ex-husband, but who is thankfully quite a big man. <laughs> and he was kind enough to come there and he had to lift my dad up. He was wedged in there, couldn't get out any other way. And we did finally, I mean, the, the EMS did come and take him, but it was like that. It was always like a, a crisis thing. And I remember I'm thinking, I mean, leading up to this had been, I was peripherally involved because you and I would catch up and I don't remember where I was in my life at that point, but you had called me as well. And I went out there and I realized that he was very weak and that maybe he had had a stroke or something was going on. But I thought to myself, like, this is the beginning of a transition to not live here anymore. He's not safe to live here. Now, leading up to this, there had been at least one uh, call to APS to help support him. We knew he was not safe, but he wouldn't leave. And he was still cognitively intact, able to make his own decisions. And, and I don't have all the details, but I remember your sister telling me that the APS social worker went out there and did a full assessment and agreed that he was able to make his own very, very bad decisions. And that there was nothing APS could do if, if an adult chose to continue living in this situation. So when I talk about this on the podcast, it's not unfamiliar to me that we think, well, people shouldn't, you know, live in their house unsafely. They absolutely can and will, um, as long as they're not endangering the safety of somebody else, you know, setting other houses on fire. But if you want to live in a filthy house and not take a shower, like APS and the government is not going to come in and make you take a shower. What complicated that too is that he was allowing other people to live with him and live around him. People that... Ne'er-do-wells. Right. They were openly doing drugs. They were just, I mean, it was... That's the mentality there where he did that because those people at least when they were in front of him adored him right because why because he gave them a place to live and didn't charge them anything or he gave they were supposed to pay rent but really they didn't pay rent so he had all these it was that also when my sister called APS was when he had given he was giving them his credit card to go get stuff for him and they were charging off I mean it was that kind of thing too yeah abuse of a they were abusing him and, I, wow. and I'll say this just because if you're not familiar with this hopefully you're not but like this isn't for lack of medical professionals sane adults in the situation trying and advocating and supporting that he get out of this situation as far as calling APS themselves and saying, we've gone to the end of what we can do to get him out of here. And then they came in and said, yeah, there's nothing we can do either, that this is not an illegal, well, according to them, right? 
situation. Oh. And so it, when he was in the shower and I was thinking, okay, this needs to go hospital, maybe some rehab into a nursing facility. Like that would be the best possible outcome because yeah. once he's removed from this physical location and situation, I think that would be the safest and best for him moving forward. But of course we didn't know that when he was in the shower and all that was happening. <laughs> so, And the, re the resolution was that the one sister, my sister who lived a good distance away, she, and I, I always applaud her for this and tell her that she made all the difference. She decided that she was going to take this in hand and she got him Medicaid. He also had Medicare. His wife had cancer. I mean, it was just a, a shit show. Okay. <laughs> situation. You might want to edit that out. Well, but, when, when she says, when, she, when we say she got him Medicaid, I mean, that alone, I mean, we don't, that was a monstrous process was. because he had no documentation. Right. It wasn't like you walked into his office and like everything was, was set. I mean, it was a, a disaster. Multiple people lived at the address and like, you know, so her, and I remember her telling me she would camp out like at the, whatever the agency was that she'd try to find the person. And then the file kept getting lost and she kept multiple copies of the same file. And, and th this was with max persistence over multiple months of somebody who was not otherwise employed spending time on that. Now it's not like that for everybody. His case was just particularly challenging because she was trying to qualify him and his wife who yes. was still living at that time to eventually go to some sort of nursing facility, which is what ended up happening. I can remember she told me at that time that, I mean, she, she didn't just fill out an application. She physically went and right. handed the application and stayed there until someone looked at it. I mean, she was like persistent to the nth degree. I remember she told me that she was sitting there with this woman across the desk. The woman said, I, I'm sorry, no, there, there's, we just can't, there's nothing, he's not qualified. She said, that's not gonna work for us. <laughs> right, I mean, he had no money. We'd be very clear, this was not <laughs> no, somebody that had any money, yeah. Keep, keep talking, because we gotta figure this out. Right. And she, they eventually did, but, and then he was in a nursing home with his wife for quite a while. She outlived him actually. Eventually we had this phone call that he had gone in for, I can't remember what was happening. To I think it was like altered mental status. Huh? Altered mental status, I believe. Okay. I can't, I just couldn't remember what brought him to the hospital that time anyway. It, they diagnosed him with a brain tumor. And it, I never heard the designation, whether it was a glioblastoma or what, but it was very fast. And right. within, he went into hospice and he was in inpatient hospice and he died within the week. I did see him before he passed. All of his kids did come to see him before he passed. Even the ones he was estranged from. Yeah. And that that was a task that 
my sister took on to make sure she got them there because she felt like it would eventually they would regret it. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> right. But so he did pass. It was my feelings weirdly. I mean, it was like, I just didn't have any. Like I just completely cut that off. I, I didn't mourn him. And I, to, to this day, I haven't mourned him. I don't know what I would mourn. That's kind of how I feel. And when we um, started, before I started recording, you told me right when we got on the line and you said, I don't, we're going to talk about this, but I don't even remember the year that he died. No, I don't. I don't. I couldn't tell you the day, the date that he died or even the year that he died. That's how much I've just blocked it out. Wow. So I don't know. I, I think I'm with in the same situation as lots of the people that you've talked to in that I didn't do it out of love but I did it. What was your thought? Your thought was, was it trying to avoid regret? Was it, I have time. Well, you didn't really have time to do this at that time, but what, if you had to pick two or three thoughts that were the most persistent that got you into action, what were they? It was a feeling of responsibility. Like I can't pass this off to somebody else. Right. Right. I think that's what my feeling was. And and I had the, I tried to see him as just as a patient. Right. What's the right thing for this person, this human being? You know, I I didn't like all the patients I went to see. (laughs) I I did mostly home health. So this was like going to somebody's home and dealing with the situation as it was right then. If I put myself in that mode, I could do it. So it it's almost like, and and you've heard we've heard this before on some of the other stories. It's a dissociative experience, and it becomes depersonalized, and that's the way that you engage. Is this is another human being, and you're like, what's what's my value system, and how I treat just any other human being? Okay, he's on the floor. Then we find a way to get him up off the floor. Like you know what I'm saying? It doesn't matter at that point if they're a good person or a bad person or what the baggage is, it's like your brain can engage with no human being deserves to lay on the floor. I don't, whatever, you know? And so it's, and I, I hear this sentiment kind of come up, which is when you're in a, when your moral obligation or your responsibility puts you into a position to care for somebody that has all this other baggage we've talked about that depersonalizing, disassociating, is how they do it, but that's not free. The cost of doing that, right? Of taking all the, like, I think your 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 soul or your spirit reaction to being in proximity, that's not zero. That just gets kind of pushed to the side for that moment, but it couldn't have been that you would come away from these interactions and feel totally neutral. I mean, these have to be kind of these delayed tsunamis of, okay, right now we're gonna get you in the hospital but, you know, three days from now, I'm going to feel really, really tired and maybe not understand why. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. When I, when I talk about nursing homes and the podcast, I think often about his nursing home stay, which was if you could pick 
an excellent one as far as how he responded to it and his quality of life once he went into the nursing home was was transformative like he should have been in a commercial right so they they ended up putting him in the same room with his wife it was not a fancy place but he became socially engaged as i'm sure you would predict off of what you said he became the president of the resident council and went to all the socials and was the the talk of the town because he was so into everybody else's business all the time, you know, and, and that didn't stop. Lots of stories. He could be entertaining, but the, the bad thing was that they were just always at the expense of someone else. But right. he could I, I have this moment that sticks out with me and even me thinking back, I also don't remember the years, but intermittently, inter, you know, visiting with him. But once he went to the first nursing home, he ended up being in two different ones, but the very first one he went to was very close to my house. And I went to visit him. And I remember in the course of this conversation, he was still not accepting that he wasn't going to go back home. He was like, Oh, this is just a rehab setting. And like, I'm eventually going to go home. And I, and we started talking about how I don't, I don't know that that's in the cards. It's not safe, blah, blah, blah. And I mentioned, and I don't remember even how it came up, but I, I made some vague comment that there are people that perhaps don't care for him. I was trying to remind him, like, you think all these people are going to come visit you now. And I'm just telling you, and I was like, I was going as meekly as possible and saying 2% of what I knew was the truth. And what I found fascinating, and I don't even know if I've told you this mom, is he stopped and he looked at me like dead in the eyes. And he said, who doesn't like me? No. And I thought, okay, there's no right answer to this question. <laughs> and I tried to backpedal and say, you know, just people. And I meant like your entire community and family that you've alienated. But like, but I remember being struck by how, like, I mean, this is, as we're discussing it, obviously a psychopathology, right? There is is a, a baseline personality disorder that that he struggled with his whole life. And I remember thinking, you know, we were off talking about all these things and it always struck me that he didn't have any interest in me or, you know, my children or like what was going on. But, um, but I remember that that almost zeroed him in, that that was going to create his next person to work on. And for the story's sake, I didn't obviously offer any names, but I'll never forget that look. And it was the look of being challenged or the look of being like, like, that's not that that would go against everything he would think that there would be people that would not come visit him. And so the the long story short is despite all the the things we've just talked about if I looked at somebody who was very successful in a nursing home setting it was him. He had his needs cared for, he got his medications on time, he was showered regularly, he had social interaction and so I know that 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 nursing homes are disparaged and in a lot of different settings, but, but honestly, they're, they're a tool. They're a set They're They're very important for yes. a population. And, and we've talked to, I talked about this in the podcast with Esther, but, you know, essentially it's almost like residential funding described, you know, disguised as medical funding because it comes oh. through a Medicaid program. Now he qualified, he, he did qualify for long-term care because he had so many medical issues. So that, yeah. I don't, I, I don't think he was in the gray zone there, but like, 
you know, that's, that's, that's not an uncommon story in the United States. And if he, even if he was, you know, a prized father and grandfather, he might not have been somebody that anybody could take care of in their home because of his body habitus. Like you could not possibly get him in and out of bed easily up off the floor. And so even if somebody had had a spare room designed, I don't know that that would have been a safe place because of, of, you know, the, the lower impact living that he needed, that was a smaller space with lots of rails everywhere. And in a, in a CNA that could come help him get out of bed every day, you know? So. Absolutely. I think you're right in that we often hear that, you know, people say I would never go to a nursing home. I think there are a lot of horror stories out there about nursing homes, but there are, there are some good nursing homes, a lot of good nursing homes. Uh, when I say good, I mean, they perform their function. They may not be, they're not designed to be a fun place with entertainment and no, they're supposed to be a safe place for right. you to try to live your life as well as you can. And most of them meet that requirement. And I don't know what we would do if we didn't have any nursing homes. Right, right. And and I will say he had an exceptionally high quality of life, probably the highest in his at least elderly life than he had had anything prior to that. He was he was safe. And here's the sad thing that I, I I'm ashamed to say in a way, but then I think why should I be ashamed? I only went to see him one time when he was in the nursing home. And to tell you how far long ago that was, was when your oldest child was born and I took her as a baby to see yeah. him so that she could, he could see her. That was, and his wife could see her. They really wanted to, but that's the only time I ever went to see him. I made no effort. So I hope that, if there is somebody that, feel, I mean, you don't have to, I think sometimes people feel guilty because they, if they don't have that affectionate feeling toward their parent or their, you don't have to. I mean, if you, I guess here's the thing. If, if you feel this is your responsibility, like I did, right or wrong, I felt I was responsible for that, for my taking part in it or however you want to say that you can do it for that reason. And that's okay. Right. Right. And the, because, Oh my gosh, I love him so much. I'm good. You don't have to do it for that reason. You don't have to do it at all. As two of my siblings proved, you don't have right. to participate at all. And that was, that was their choice. But I think, you know, you don't have to have a pure heart or whatever that makes it then a good or a bad thing it it is what it is and you handle it the best that you can under the circumstances and don't beat yourself up about it I mean when I think about that I I talk to other people they say oh has your your dad passed I was like yeah (laughs) (laughs) I think so because he didn't have a big role in my life anyway but when I, when I visit, I visited him periodically and, and the, the thought in my head was, 
a granddaughter visits a grandfather when they're in this proximity. And my husband and I, I would, I would just say, we're going to go visit today. And he just knew what that meant. Right. So we were going <laughs> to go usually on a Sunday afternoon after lunch, or you've already eaten and stop by and then have somewhere else to go. And I look back and I'm like, does that even feel right? Like, I don't know. And I'm still wondering. It was like, it was buying insurance against, <laughs> well, how could your grandfather have lived five miles away and you never <laughs> went to see him? And I don't know who I was pleasing, people pleasing myself or him, yeah. or it doesn't, I mean, at this point, and it, I mean, this wasn't a large expenditure, right? I mean, I, we drove somewhere for an hour. I mean, and so to me, it was, it was not hard, but the other thing I want to talk about, and I don't want to, ironically, I don't want him to monopolize this discussion as well. The, there were two other women in his life that draw a, an extreme juxtaposition and extreme contrast. And so the, I'll start first with his second wife who was your stepmother, although they got married after you were an adult. So it wasn't like uh, your mother but she was an extremely loving, kind, caring individual and how she lived with him. That's a whole other discussion. And she was nothing but warmth and strong hugs and sloppy kisses. And she was just that person. She was like a rock and she was physically strong. She was mentally strong, but when it came to him, there was some dynamic that, that nobody understood but she came with him throughout this. They were paired. They, that never stopped. And when I look back and say, you know, why did I go there? It was to, I loved her. I thought she was a kind, good person. And I never, ever wanted anything bad to happen. I mean, like this was a, like she needed a good end to her life. Like she, you know, she had had a bad set of cards dealt to her and she overcame that. And so, you know, again, I get so preoccupied with like, he's my biological connection. He's the genetic grandfather. But I think back and I'm thinking I was, I was there to see her like, and he was there too, but, but we can't, you know, these are the, again, the complexity of that situation is this wasn't just one relationship with one person. This was, I mean, all of us had known her for decades and, I don't, there was nobody that had any ill sentiment that you couldn't. This person was just so, so nice. And so let me stop you there because the sad part about that, and I am sad about this. We, as, as the, the kids, basically his children never accepted her. We never returned her warmth. Why, I mean, uh, my my parents' divorce was nasty. It was bad. And somehow our feelings about that and about our father attached to her. Now, there were different levels of like or dislike between, you know, how each of my siblings felt about her. But that, that I do regret. And I, I think that that's almost, that's an important regret to think about because that is, 
just very complex with another human being who was in your presence that deserved and merited a, as much kindness as you could muster at that time. But, but my relationship, she was a grandmother to me because oh. as I was born, they were already remarried. And so I don't have that context. The other <coughs> thing I want to talk about, and this will be the last thing we talk about, and I appreciate you hanging in so long is it is, it does not escape me that I live with his first wife and she was the opposite of most of the things that you talked about. She was honest, love, loving, kind, hardworking, would do anything for her family. I mean, she's a force, right? And she has retained the love and adoration of people that aren't even related to her, that she's just accumulated along the ways. And this could be, you know, friends of her grandkids that she's known or, and, and she just doesn't know a stranger, you know, unless the stranger is a home health nurse coming here. And that's a whole other issue. You talk about somebody whose presence is larger than life in a positive way and they attract people to them. And I've gotten the, the privilege of living with her for this long and seeing how the family and community reacts differently when there's somebody that you literally can't do enough for and how every time she needs something, there's three or four people that can, can help or support. And, and the bench is deep, I'll put it that way, for people able and or willing to assist her. And it's, it's in some sort of elementary way, I'm looking at these two trajectories in life, and it really just, it spells out, you know, what goes around comes around. And I don't mean this in an apathetic way, but like, she had built so much into so many other people and she's in her, her later years and that pays dividends. It's, it's visits, it's phone calls, it's engagement. And when you have a way of life that alienates people, it becomes very difficult. And so it's just weird to me that it's that couple, my, my genetic grandparents who drew very stark contrast in what those years will look like for you. And so like when I'm teaching my kids to like, part of the reason to be kind and nice is one, you know, the right thing to do, but did you don't want to die alone? Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, do you, I mean, you don't want to go through that. Now, I don't know that he ever felt that way and he didn't die alone, but like, I don't know. I, it, it's just one of those things in life where you're like, this couldn't be a more obvious difference between these two people. I don't know if you see it the same way. Oh, no, absolutely. That's, in fact, I, I, I often wonder, how did he ever get either one of them to marry him? <laughs> okay, that's um, a whole other podcast. <laughs> obviously, he had a, a persona he could put on to attract someone like I said it could be very entertaining and all that stuff so it's just amazing to me that yeah that he got either one of them if you had to do you hold any and this is an unfair question Mm -hmm. if I had to rewrite that whole story and I wanted you to tell me the best possible iteration of his story what would that be oh gosh (laughs) I think now I realize that he he was he he had some a mental illness that 
kept him from being able to truly connect. Yeah, to even conceive of the the needs of others or the to care about other people. I, I've lost now what the point where you what what were you asking me to say? oh the best possible oh know. so I guess for me the best possible way to explain is that he in the he was allowed to grow up in a very irresponsible manner and think only of himself if he had known my his parents my grandparents that's yeah but to understand that whole dynamic and how he treated them when they were aging how was um, that well my grandfather always had kidney issues he wanted to use now, this is, <laughs> he wanted the, the home place in order to use it for what he wanted it to be. He, he inherited everything, well, I should say inherited. He actually got my grandparents to give him everything before they even died, which was a lot. He was given a lot and he moved them out of their the house they had lived in their whole lives or since they had been married which was a lot of time and we lived what maybe 100 yards from them where i grew up well he got this single wide mobile home and parked it next to our house uh, it, that was after Papa died, yeah. And he moved my grandmother into that trailer. And I can just remember, it was devastatingly sad. Uh, she was totally alone. She was somebody like him in that she had no friends. <laughs> my grandfather did. He had a, a large community, but not my grandmother. And it was, I guess we had to be guilted into going to see her. She was not a nice person, <laughs> but I felt sad for her. Yeah. She sat, she didn't watch TV. I don't remember her ever watching TV. She didn't read. She, <laughs> she was just sitting there. I mean, it was worse than a nursing home, much worse. But his, his second wife is the one who ended up taking care of her. Interesting. I didn't know that part. Yeah. And it's that she moved, who moved her into the trailer. I would maybe two or three years before my parents got divorced. And so by the time my grandmother was really in bad shape, it was my stepmother who 
took responsibility for her. He sure didn't. I don't remember him ever going to visit her. So he he did what he was supposed to do as far as take them to the hospital when they needed to go to the hospital. And I think there were some mental issues going on with her. And yeah. I'm sure that affected him. So the best way for me to think about it is that he wasn't really responsible for the way he behaved. I mean, to a degree, but I mean. There were some formative experiences yeah. that. And, and some mental illness, I'm sure. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's just, a, it's really a good thing for all of us, my siblings and I, that he wasn't around very much. God only knows how, what da uh, more damage he could have done to us had he been there all the time. Yeah. We were mostly raised by my mother. Who was working a lot because he wasn't around. <laughs> so interesting. Okay. Well, I, I think this is fascinating. I think I'm, I'm very thankful that you're sharing such a vulnerable period and I'm glad we got to talk about it. There's a lot of things I learned that I did not know. I want to ask you a question. I'm not, I, how is this discussing this going to help, I think help anybody else that's listening to it? The only, I, I guess, I don't know what you think about that. Is like, I, how can we use this to help people? The only thing I can think of is that, you know, you don't have to feel great affection for someone to do your duty, which is what I felt it was my duty to do that. So I'm glad you asked that because I feel like if we only hear lifetime movie stories, which I'll have plenty of those on the podcast of yeah. You know, dad was the absolute best. We did everything. We wouldn't have dropped, you know, we would have dropped everything to do whatever was needed. But I want, I've always wanted the podcast to represent a lot of different points of view and, and specifically points of view that would be not talked about at the office party, you know, that might bring up some, some shame or baggage or complexity. I mean, you know, you know me, I just like the complexity of it. I like the complexity of the topic, but I love that. I always want to study how the brain is reacting in different situations and why. And so if I only looked at adult children of amazing stellar parents, I'm not sure we would learn a whole lot. I mean, I shouldn't say that we'll learn a lot about a very specific setting. And wow. so I've always wanted to represent everything, even, you know, starting out interviewing Paul, who is completely estranged from his parent with breast cancer. And, and I'm not coming in judging that anything is good or bad, or you should or shouldn't. It's just that pure curiosity of how did you do that? What motivated you? And then also what was a lesson learned? Like, do you, I guess, sitting here right now, do you feel like you saved yourself some regret? If you had sat out on the sidelines, do you feel like you'd hate yourself? I mean, is that even knowable? I, I don't, I'll just be as honest and raw as I can. And that when you said that, the first thing that came to my mind was how my siblings would have 
judged me. Ah, that's an important part too. And sometimes we make this calculation, you know, it's just not worth the drama and I'll just do it this way. Right. I mean, that's a lot of life too. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I like that you brought that up because it's not so much, you know, what will this parent think of me? I mean, a lot of it's the pressure from the community and the family structure as a whole. Yeah. Right. And I'm probably the the pressuring sibling in my group, right? I'm the one that's like, you need to do this. You got to show up here. And so I am the one that I think that they'd be most afraid of <laughs> when it comes to you or my, or my dad, right? Like, oh my God, you know, she's going to think I'm not doing the right thing. So, well, see, um, so uh, my cousin felt that way. That struck me when Aunt Margie passed. She wanted, she was concerned with what the grandchildren would think of her. Right. And, but and, you know, as much as she possibly could, that was a big consideration for her. Yeah. So I'm glad you're sharing it. And I do know it resonates with people and I do want a highly diverse set of stories because that's what the conversations are is a diverse set of stories. And the point would be if somebody hears their story in you and feels validated they feel reassured. They feel like they have community with you, even if they don't know you. That's the whole reason people talking and conversing, that alone is healing, that those stories are published and they outlive you or me, you know, and on the interwebs, right? And that people can find that. Now, I'm I'm very sensitive to not like using first and last names for these people. And I, I also acknowledge that everybody is complex and I don't want to make this into some deliberation as to whether or not this person was worthy or not worthy, but it has to be very focused on your experience. And that experience is true to you and, and real and what you experienced. And that is where I think developing the elements of those stories and being candid about it is what helps. I mean, imagine the first time you read something online that you accidentally identified with, and then it just suddenly felt better, even if you didn't know the person, you just read the story. So that's right. That's what I think. I could be totally wrong, but that's that's why we're here. Okay. That makes sense to me. And one of the the best feedback I've gotten on the podcast is when people tell their story and then share it with their own family. Yeah. There's a lot more discussion. I didn't realize that this happened or I didn't realize you went through this. And yeah. um, and sometimes it's easier to talk to me, even <laughs> in this recorded I setting. And then share it, then go talk to people individually and try to find time over the holidays to say, well, here was my experience taking care of grandma or, you know, so yeah, well, I, I, again, thank you for being vulnerable and candid. And I know there's many things for us to talk about in future podcasts, but I really wanted to get this one out there. So I, I appreciate you being here. Of course. All right. Until next time. All right. Thank you.